the glory of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Have you ever loved something or someone with more enthusiasm than anybody else could really keep up with? Maybe a pet or a particular restaurant or a bad joke that you just keep telling no matter how often it falls flat? For example, two biscuits are in an oven. And one biscuit says, boy, it's really getting hot in here. And the second biscuit goes, ah, a talking biscuit. It's a thinker. I love Lent. I love Ash Wednesday. I love reciting the Decalogue. I love singing metrical hymns that take us a little while to catch on to. I love giving things up and taking things on and not saying that A word. And I love waiting for Easter. I love all of this because I am convinced, sincerely, that all these things draw us closer to Christ. And in our lives that are so busy and so noisy, it is important to have one whole season dedicated to remembering our sinfulness and our need for a redeemer and also letting us live in that space a little bit longer than we would like, not resolving it too quickly. Lent is a season for marination in prayer and in God's word, and I find that year after year it is better for my soul than almost anything else. As we begin Lent together, the scriptures are inviting us to do the same, to sit with the reality of our sin, but also to give us the hope for a redeemer. So we start with Jesus in the wilderness, and we see that we're not alone as we face temptation, and that the way through our temptations is to imitate Christ and trust in him. So at the beginning of Luke chapter 4, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit, and he's led by that same Spirit into the wilderness where he spends 40 days being tempted by the devil. It's important to note that Jesus is not in the wilderness because of his own will or because of his own choice. He is God's chosen one, as made clear in his baptism and that loud voice he hears from heaven. And it's the Holy Spirit that is driving the action in his life. He is empowered by the Spirit and full of the Spirit and inspired by the Spirit. And he will not face the tests that the devil puts before him without God being right there with him. That should probably encourage us. And that's because the test that Jesus faced was designed to deny the truth of his identity as the Son of God by any means available. And the devil who is, of course, always acting behind the scenes to disrupt the work of the Lord in history, steps out onto the stage for this direct confrontation, seeking to cut Christ off before his work gets really underway. But it's important for us to recognize that the devil here is not a fire-breathing, muscly demon. He doesn't have a pitchfork, as we often see him depicted in pop culture. The devil is a shadow. He makes suggestions. He is ultimately a sad parasite on the goodness of God. And his power is mostly in twisting, in distortion. 
in throwing shade, if you will. The devil pretends to be able to offer Jesus the good things that God has promised him, but the devil cannot actually deliver on any of this. His offerings are cheap imitations of the gift of God in which Jesus already shares as his son. C.S. Lewis, I think, really captures this well in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In that lovely little book, everything that the white witch offers the children is a corrupted version of something that Aslan intends for them to have in its true substance. She pretends that she'll share the throne with Edmund and then leave it to him, while the whole story is actually about Aslan trying to crown these four children as kings and queens. The devil has no substantial power to offer us good things. So instead, he offers the knockoff versions of God's goodness and love. It's a little bit like if you go to the grocery store, and particularly on the soda aisle, this always comes home for me, where you'll see Coca-Cola and Pepsi and Mountain Dew, and then you'll see whatever the store brand of those is. Uh, Mountain Lightning is the famous one. Uh, If you go to Walmart, uh, it's not Mountain Dew, it's Mountain Lightning. Uh, It's kind of just as good. When I was a kid, of course, uh, in Florida, we have Publix, so there's Dr. Publix, uh, which is almost as good as real Dr. Pepper. Uh, And that's sort of what the devil has. What he offers is not actually as good as what God has, uh, but it is the knockoff version. And sometimes it looks so good that we'll take the bait. But thanks be to God, Christ resists. Jesus is famished from his fasting, and as he comes to the end of that 40 days, he's naturally hungry. And when he is at his weakest, this is when the devil appears. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Of course, the 40 days in the wilderness remind us of the 40 years that Israel spent wandering in the desert. But Jesus' physical hunger is not a metaphor. He needs something to eat. And in his weakness, his hunger is an entry point. And the devil does not deny that he is the son of God but instead tries to exploit his status by urging Jesus to use his power to meet his own needs, to serve his own ends. And what he offers Jesus seems to be a victimless crime. Who is hurt by this act of self-provision? But of course, Christ has not come into the world to serve himself or to feed himself, but to serve others and to feed others. And the devil is engaging in a kind of wickedly clever reinterpretation of what it means to be the son of God. For the devil, this status is given so that you can meet your own immediate needs. That's what power is good for, solving problems, getting things done. But Jesus understands his identity differently. He says, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. Christ must practice faithful obedience to God's will, not turning the power that God has given him into just a party trick. Jesus won't settle for this kind of shadowy suggestion. Later, of course, he will feed 5,000 people with 12 baskets left over. And this is the gap between the substantial real-life goodness of God and the lame offering of the devil that he will happily help us settle for. Jesus trusts That if he will not abuse his privileges as the son of God, better things are in store for the whole world. His reply comes from Deuteronomy, and he identifies with the hungry 
but while also affirming that God is the one in whom he trusts. And so we see that every test that Israel faced in the desert, Christ will also face, but will overcome. Because he is the son of God, because he is indeed able to do exactly what the devil fears he can do. Jesus will not be so easily led astray. So then the second temptation, Jesus and the devil arrive on a high place. And in a vision, the devil shows Christ all the kingdoms of the world and says to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. Now, the first readers of Luke's gospel must have been chuckling at this point because the Roman emperor was allegedly the most powerful person in the world. But instead, it seems that even his authority is actually just delegated to him by Satan. We should probably keep that in mind when we desire to be in charge. But here is another tidy proposal. The devil offers to give Jesus power and authority to rule the world. And all he has to do is replace God the Father with Satan. In his life, the devil will give Jesus what is his due, but will also exact a high price. And all he has to do is deny his identity as the Son of God. But of course, in the devil's own words, there's a recognition that these two possibilities are not really parallel at all, because the devil and God are not equals. Whatever rule the devil exercises is that allowed to him by God, and he can only delegate to Jesus what has already been delegated to him. So he's really been invited to sign up for a position in middle management. And what Jesus has offered is a shabby substitute for the divine sonship that he already has. This is another of those knockoff imitations, an attempt to derail Christ's mission at the outset if possible, by giving Jesus what is already his, but in a more watered-down form. This is the mountain lightning of worldly authority. Christ doesn't need to get power from the devil because he already possesses it as the Son of God. And he may indeed desire to see all kingdoms of the world submit to him. But this is not the moment or the technique that God desires. The devil's pretensions to absolute sovereignty have to be rejected. So Jesus answered, as it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. That's Deuteronomy again. The devil's getting a Bible lesson from Jesus. But he seems not to be quite grasping the bigger picture just yet. So finally, for the third temptation, Jesus and the devil come to Jerusalem, to the high point of the temple, the tallest building for many, many miles. And the devil says, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. This final test happens in Jerusalem, undoubtedly because of the test that Jesus will have to face on the cross. And the temple is an appropriate setting because maybe you recognize the scripture the devil is quoting. It comes from Psalm 91 which we read this morning. That psalm is addressed to you who live in the shelter of the Most High. So the devil is actually getting frustrated with all of Jesus' Bible talk at this point. So he throws down with some scripture of his own. But Jesus has his ears attuned to hear the voice of God speaking in scripture. 
So the devil tries to speak with God's voice. This is similar to what the snake did to Eve in the garden, twisting God's words for a selfish purpose. And I think this is important for us to understand. The devil knows scripture. The devil can quote scripture, chapter and verse, but the devil is a liar. And his interpretation of the text is twisted by his own aims. It's easy enough for us, of course, to dismiss the devil's efforts, right? Because the devil is unreliable and untrustworthy even when he quotes scripture. But we also need firmer ground to stand on than, I don't know, it's the devil, the devil is bad, Jesus is good, go with Jesus. (laughs) So Jesus answers, he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It's Deuteronomy the third time. But why do we think that Christ's reading of Scripture is better than Satan's, besides the fact that we all went to Sunday school and we know Jesus is over Satan every time? That's pretty easy. But here's the answer. The devil is trying to recruit Jesus to be part of a test of God's promises. But he overlooks the critical detail that Psalm 91 is addressed to those who, through their fidelity to God, reside in God's own presence. Even within the world of that psalm, it's faithful obedience to God that is the first commitment. And Jesus is about the business of the kingdom and focused on his father's agenda at all times. It seems to me perhaps even more important that the devil fails to grasp that God's redemption might actually be brought about through suffering and death, not in spite of them. That suffering and even death are not the end of God's love for us. So Christ is ready and willing to suffer because his suffering reveals the love at the heart of God's kingdom. And this is what the devil fails to understand. Beginning with this temptation all the way to Calvary, the devil thinks that death is the ultimate defeat that he can deal to Christ. But he is very, very wrong. And finally, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. In ancient times, the threefold performance of an action showed that it was completely finished. And so it is here. The three tests have been passed, and by facing them, Jesus shows himself to be unequivocally prepared for everything that will come next for him in public ministry. He's ready to go out and do what God has called him to do. And the devil's withdrawal signals his concession, but just for a moment. He will continue to lurk, to sort of skulk around at the outside edges of the gospel. In Jesus' encounters with demonic forces and in resistance to Christ's ministry. And finally, the devil will, of course, appear again at the cross. As we enter into Lent, we're being reminded by the gospel that God and the devil are not equals, engaged in some kind of cosmic winner-take-all wrestling match. Christ resists the temptations as a fully embodied human, and so can we. We are not doomed to be ruled by our temptations. We can overcome them because Christ has overcome every temptation on our behalf. And what the devil offers him, just as what the devil offers you and I, looks really good. It is a genuine temptation. 
but Christ resists so that we too can be free from our sins. His commitment to us, sinners that we are, is just that strong. This season we seek to join him, to imitate his faithfulness, because disciples are those who seek to follow their master. But if the burdens of faithfulness are too heavy, if the challenges that we face are too great, Christ does not just throw up his hands and abandon us and leave us to face the consequences of our sin alone. He is with us in our struggle, in our triumphs, and in our failures. Because he knows what a hard thing it is to resist temptation. Because he faced every temptation that we do, and he overcame all of them. Now, brothers and sisters, I don't know what your Lent is going to be like. I don't know what particular temptations you may be facing, or what clever lies the devil whispers in your ear, or what sins that you find the hardest to avoid. But this Lent, as we begin this journey toward the cross and Easter together, I hope you will take encouragement from knowing that we can place our trust in Christ because he has shown the way to overcome every temptation. And he did it on our behalf. And that those half-truths that we hear, those imitation offerings that are held before us, can be turned aside. We can resist them because Christ has done it for us already and indeed invites us to join him in that resistance every step of the way. Amen.